0: If you could uh, turn to Luke chapter 14, that'd be awesome. I'm going to be reading from the NIV version. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host invited, both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, sorry, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought a five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I have just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town. And bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told the servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them and he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own lives, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Why don't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or well, suppose a king is about to go on to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able to, with ten thousand men, to oppose the one coming against him with twenty thousand? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. The same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap that is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let me pray. Father God, we want to thank you for the privilege to hear your word. We pray now that as we continue this time of worship, that you would stir our hearts, that you clear our minds to hear what you're saying to us individually but also corporately as a church. We pray for your servant Paul as he proclaims your word, that you empower him through your spirit you'd help him to rely on your power and your energy for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thanks, Shabu, for reading through that. Now, when I start with an illustration, I want you to think that I'm a massive fan of YouTube because I actually don't really like YouTube. I don't really spend much time on it. But there's one clip that came across my um, desk. I actually think it was John who brought it to my attention. Uh, And it's one of those clips where on YouTube I was watching it over and over again. It's called Uncle Drew. Anyone know? Maybe the younger. Do you know about Uncle Drew? There's a few of you which know about Uncle Drew. Uncle Drew is an old man who looks a little bit like this. He looks kind of grumpy. He's well past his prime. Um, he's generally a little bit angry at life, but he loves basketball. So he hangs around basketball courts all the time. And one time he gets lucky in that uh, someone gets injured and they say, Uncle Drew, can you help out? And so he limps around the court. He loses the ball. He takes a few shots that are air balls. Everyone's thinking this guy's just completely out of place. But what they don't realize is that Uncle Drew is actually Kyrie Irving, an NBA superstar who's dressed up. And pretty soon Uncle Drew starts to do some pretty impressive moves. He's dribbling around, he's stealing the ball, he's sinking three pointers all of a sudden, and he's dunking the ball at both ends of the court. And everyone's amazed at this guy all of a sudden. What they don't realize is they're actually playing against someone who's in the starting five in the NBA, NBA team. Now, why do I mention Uncle Drew? Well, it's a reminder that we always need to be careful about relying on outward appearances because what's under the surface can be completely different. Now, we rely on outward appearances all the time. I mean, we look at the way people can dress and the way they talk and we can make assumptions about their background or where they're from. We look at people's cars and their houses and whether we would admit it or not, you tend to make a few assumptions about their financial means. And we do this in church as well. I mean, we look at... Uh, people, we ask for their surname and we start to evaluate for whether they're from good stock or not. Uh, we can hear people's prayers and we make assumptions about how close they're walking with God. And, and we look at people up the front who are in various music teams or in leadership teams and we think, man, I could never be as spiritual as those people. And today's passage challenges that mentality because it encourages us to look past the outward exterior To look past the things that we can see on the outside and to start asking the question about what's inside. What's in here? What's in the heart and what really matters? You see, in Luke 14, Jesus finds himself around the table of society's elite. He's invited to the dinner table of not just a leader, a religious leader being a Pharisee, but a prominent Pharisee. This is a leader of leaders. And he's surrounded by uh, the who's who in the day. Well, what we find is that he's not interested in the slightest about their impressive appearances. He's not interested in their resumes or their social standing. He's not interested in their knowledge of uh, their Old Testament laws. What he's interested in is what's inside. He's interested in the heart. And in doing so, he emphasizes that God's kingdom is not for those who might look, speak, and act in a certain way. It's for people whose heart reflects the true hallmarks of one of his disciples. So as we go through Luke 14 together, I want us to um, have a think about what it's telling us in terms of the heart of a true disciple and what the hallmarks of a true disciple of Jesus Christ are. So at the start of Luke 14, what we see is he's walking along and they come across a man uh, which had a condition called dropsy. Now, dropsy is a funny term, but in the translation that Shabu read, it talked about an accumulation of fluid, and that's what it was. It, was, it resulted in the accumulation of fluid in your body tissue, so it became quite swollen and puffy and bloated, particularly around areas like the, the face and the neck. A condition which clearly was quite debilitating in its most severe form. And so Jesus turned to the people he was with and he said, well, should I heal this person? Now, most of the questions Jesus asks are rhetorical because he knows the answer. And in Luke 13, this very issue came up. So the issue here is not just about a healing, it's the fact that he asked them, should I heal this person on the Sabbath? And in Luke chapter 13, Jesus was in the synagogue and this was a Sabbath day again. And in that case, it wasn't someone with dropsy, it was a crippled woman who came up to Jesus and said, can you heal me? And Jesus healed her. And then it says in chapter 13, uh, verse around 10 to 14, the ruler of the synagogue actually came out and said, hey, there's six days for work, come and be healed on one of those days, don't be healed on the Sabbath day. Now, here we are a few Sabbaths later, and Jesus is asking the question, well, should I heal this person on the Sabbath? The implication is, here, well, you shouldn't really be healing on the Sabbath. You can come back and heal him on one of the other days. But it's interesting that it says the Pharisees stayed silent. And you can imagine there's a bit of a bind there, because if they say it's unlawful to heal on the Sabbath, they then can be perceived to be a really a, a mean and heartless people. But if they say that it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then all of a sudden they're criticized by their own for not upholding the rules and the laws that they've been trained in. So they stay silent, and rather than waiting for a reply, Jesus heals the man, fixes him, brings life back into his situation. And he then notes to the Pharisees, If this has been your son or some oxen, a valuable possession, and they'd fallen in a ditch, you would have jumped in and helped immediately. Now that's quite a direct statement. He's saying, if this person, the person that had dropsy, if he was a family member or someone of value to you, you would have been compelled to do something about the situation. But you don't know him for a bar of soap. He's a stranger. He's got a condition which most of you would assume is, uh, is lined up with his own sinfulness, which is what they thought at the day. And so you're willing to just pass him by. And it's interesting. It says the Pharisees had no response. Now, when I spoke in Luke four, uh, back earlier in the year on Luke chapter four, I made the point that Jesus' ministry, right from the outset, was about seeing people's lives and hearts redeemed. It was about meeting people in their point of need and and changing them in a way in which they would never be the same again. It was about setting them free. And that passage he read from Isaiah 61. And he talked about the fact that he declared that his role was about setting people free, was about releasing the oppressed, was about bringing redemption into people's lives. And then in Luke 4, we see he immediately went out and started doing that, didn't he? He started driving out evil spirits. He started healing people from their illnesses and their diseases and their conditions. He straightaway went about to meet people in their point of need and redeem them and set them free. And in Luke 14, we see he's continuing on with that work. He's seeing someone here. He might be on his way to something else, but he sees a person in need and he redeems him. Now, what's interesting, though, in this particular chapter, which we didn't get so much in chapter 4, is that he's doing it in a way which flew in the face of the self-imposed rules and regulations and social standards that were set by the authorities of the day. This was something different. Now, why... What does that tell us? Well, it tells us Jesus' heart wasn't about complying with a prescribed set of standards. Jesus' heart wasn't about appearing to be the most religious. Jesus' heart wasn't about looking the part. His heart was first and foremost about seeing people's lives redeemed. That was always his priority. That was always his purpose. Now let me bring this issue forward into today's context because healing people on the Sabbath is less of an issue for us today. But we too can become, uh, we too can become governed and absorbed by rules which control our life rather than the redemption of lives around us. You know, today we don't speak in terms of Sabbath compliance, but our tendency is to focus on our church attendance, our small group involvement, our ministry roles. We look at our leadership positions here. We look at the appropriateness of the way we conduct ourselves at church-related activities. We can look at the amount of money that we tithe each week. We can look at our, our, our roles in schools and other not-for-profit organizations, and all of a sudden we can, we can assess the way we are engaging in those generally accepted activities, and we can make assumptions about how our walk with Jesus is going. Now, none of those things are bad. They're just not what really matters in the end. They're just a means to an end. That's not what it's about. What our heart needs to be about is something much, much deeper than that. For Jesus' ministry is and has always been about seeing people's hearts redeemed. When you cut through the activities and things we're involved in, that is the heart. That is the focus on seeing people's lives changed. So that those people who recognize their place, that they're enslaved and caught in sin, they meet Jesus and they're set free. His priority was to get into people's lives and release them from their burdens, forgive them from their sins, and give them a life that, that can only be known when we're connected with our God and Creator. So, when it comes to looking at the true hallmarks of one of Jesus' disciples, we can see already that it's not about compliance with a set of standards or rules or regulations. It's not about living or fitting in with a particular lifestyle. Because all those things are external, aren't they? They're all temporary. This heart is about doing everything that we can to invest into others in their point of need. So we meet them at that point of need and we direct them to Jesus who can do something about their point of need, who can change their lives in a way that makes them never the same and gives them a life that will go well beyond this life, that will go into all eternity. Church, may we never be a people that gets lost in living godly lives, such that our hearts become absorbed with rules and expectations rather than the redemption of our soul and the redemption of the souls around us. For that is first and foremost where our heart needs to be. But that's just moving to the dinner table. He's not even there yet. That's just on the way there. See, Jesus then gets to the dinner table and he observes the conduct of the people that are around him and they start to posture and compete for places of honor around the dinner table. Now, in that day, there was a prescribed um, way in which people were positioned around the dinner table. There was a particular place for a person of most honor, and then next to him was the person of next honor after that, and then the person of next honor after that, and all the way down the line. And so what we see here is people posturing and competing to get the places around the table that had the higher value attached to them. And after observing this behavior, he then tells them a parable. And the parable essentially says, you know, it's better to take the lower positions and to be asked to be elevated up the ranks than to assume one of the positions at the top and then be shamed in the way you're asked to then move down the pecking order. Now, why does Jesus make this point? Well, there's an immediate application in that he's observing the way they're fighting for the places of honour rather than taking the lower places and allowing other people to be encouraged and glorified as they take the higher positions of honour. And we can be like that sometimes as well. I mean, we like to receive praise for things. We like to be recognised for our achievements. We like to um, have people acknowledge what we've done rather than necessarily being a champion of others and letting them have their moment. But more importantly, though, there's a secondary application which also applied. See, the Bible refers to a form of heavenly wedding feast. It refers to a great banquet that is to come, which is representative of the time when we go to be with God in glory in heaven and we spend time with him. After Jesus, we talk to communion about how Jesus is going to come again and he's going to bring all those who have faith in Him up to be with him in heaven. And that time in in the Bible and book of Revelation refers to that as a great wedding feast on that day, a time in eternity which all those who believe in Jesus Christ can look forward to. And now Jesus doesn't go into this in a lot of detail at this point, as he does more later on. But for now what he's doing is challenging people to think, remember that there's a time coming where honour and glory is going to be more important than it is here. And our goal should be to be honoured at that day, not on this day. But well, we should take humble positions now, for that will bear rewards later on. And you can see that in the language in verse 11, where he says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself now will be exalted. He's using future tense there. He's looking to a time in the future where thi- people will either be exalted in eternity or they will be humbled in eternity. And he's saying, you know what, that eternal perspective is what we need to have. Don't worry about where you're sitting around the table today. You've got to have a bigger picture than that. Now, he makes this point to the guests, and then he turns to the host and says the same message in a different way. He turns to the host and he criticizes the host for only inviting those people who are the elite, the elite of society. See so he says to the host in the next section, you know, it's not good to invite all your friends and your brothers and your relatives or all people who can pay you back. That's not really who should be at this dinner table. It should be who? The blind, the crippled, the poor, and the lame. Why should they be at the table? Well, those people can offer nothing in return. They would be incredibly blessed to be at this sort of dinner table. So if we're thinking in terms of eternity, wouldn't it be better now to bless some people who can't bless themselves and do it because we're seeking eternal glory, not a temporary one that we see here now? For when we bless others, we are able, we, when we bless others who are unable to bless us, Jesus reminds them in verse 14 that God will recognize these things in the, it says, resurrection of the dead. It's time in the future, isn't it? We're pointing again forward to that time in eternity. He's saying, look forward to that time and let your gl- ambitions for glory and honor be for then, not now. So he's spoken to the guests and now he's speaking directly to the host. And he tells each of them not to chase glory and praise for here and now, be focused on glory and praise at a time in the future, the time that matters when we're before God in eternity. Now, that's not an easy thing to do, is it? It's not easy to move our focus away from the here and now and onto the eternal. Because we're naturally wired to remain fixed on the here and now, aren't we? We're designed to strive for that amazing education. We're designed to strive for that next promotion. We're designed to chase the better salary. We're designed to make sure we get our house in order. We're designed to shore up our investment portfolios and make sure that our superannuation is as stable as possible. We're designed to seek out recognition and honour for everything that we do here and now. We're designed to make sure here and now we're looked after. People are looking after me. See, our hearts naturally get consumed by the priorities of this world and the here and now. So rarely do our minds go to eternity. Where do Rarely do our minds go to where God's priority lies. And that's exactly the point that leads us into the next parable where he talks about the great banquet that is to come. And we see these in verse 15 to 24. See, I love this in verse 15, because one one of the people around the table has a bit of a brain bubble for a, for a second. They make this comment, all right? but it's not really a sincere or genuine statement. It's one of those statements which is intended to show that, hey, I'm on the same wavelength as Jesus. I know what he's talking about here. You guys need to keep up with us because we're streets ahead. So he says, oh, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So I know what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a greater kingdom has come. And it's as if the way he says that, it's like, I can't wait to be at that kingdom. That's the only only feast that I really care about. Now, Jesus responds in a way where you can imagine it creating a lot of tension and awkwardness around the dinner table. And it's one of the most direct parables I reckon you'll find in the Gospel of Luke, a direct response to that person's statement of how, how keen he is to be at the great banquet that is to come. Now in this parable that he then responds with, he says there's an owner of a house and he's invited many guests to a great banquet. He keeps this idea of the banquet flowing. And he sends out his servant to tell them that everything's ready, the time is right, the banquet's here, so get them in here because it's time to feast. But one by one they start to make excuses. One of them says, well, I just bought a field so I want to check that out. Please excuse me. Another one says, well, I've just bought a whole lot of oxen, so I want to try them out. You know, Please excuse me. Another one says, I've just got married. Please excuse me. So the servant reports this back to the owner. And the owner becomes angry by this. And so he orders that servant to then go out to who? The blind, the crippled, the poor, and the like. We've already spoken about them, haven't we? They're the people which Jesus was saying to the host, hey, you've got to get these people in the dinner table. Don't worry about the others. And now he's saying the servant's being sent out to that category of people and they all accept the invitation. They all come. And then he goes out into the roads and the alleyways and he says, invite them because this banquet needs to be full. And then they all come, they accept the invitation and the banquet is full. And then Jesus hits home the message by saying this. And you can see this is a direct comment straight back to that person that chipped in before. Because the owner says, I tell you, not one of those men who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. That's a pretty direct statement. See, for the guests at the feast that had just commented on how amazing it's going to be at the great banquet at the kingdom of God, Jesus effectively said to him, you're right, it will be amazing, but you're not even going to be there to taste it. You're not even going to get to experience that banquet. See, for that man was part of a religious hierarchy which represented those which had been invited into God's kingdom. Since the beginning of time, God had a plan of salvation for this people. He had a plan of salvation for the Jewish people that, that was going to reach fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It was a plan that was about the forgiveness of their sins once and for all. That was going to be achieved through jesus christ on the on the cross his death a death that would once and for all replace the sacrifice of bulls and goats that was required for all the old testament this was his salvation plan that he had for his people and now jesus was coming out as god's servant and telling them that the time was now this plan was ready everything's ready everything's set up Come in and be part of the kingdom which is arriving. Come in and be part of this salvation plan. Freedom and forgiveness can now be yours, my people. But for those whom this plan had ultimately be, had originally been intended, they all refused to come and be part of that plan. How did that live out? Because they all rejected Jesus' message. They said, Jesus Christ, I'm not willing to follow you. Please excuse me. they were too they clung too tightly to their earthly kingdoms to embrace God's kingdom by placing their faith in Jesus Christ so the parable says that they went the servant went to everyone else he went particularly to the blind the crippled the poor and the lame now what was it about that category of people well, at that day, they, they represented the outcast, the unclean, the dejected, the lowest and most disadvantaged of society. And they also recommended those which people assumed had that condition because of their own sinfulness. They were a people which represented the inherently sinful heart of people. Not because, not because their, their condition was a result of their sinfulness. That was the perception. And so Jesus looking at that category of people and he's saying, Jesus went to the sinners. And in short, what did they do? They accepted the invitation. They're the ones which are going to be at the kingdom. The one which, the, the groups of people which they would have assumed would never have been part of God's kingdom. Jesus saying they're the ones who are going to fill it. Now why do you think they accepted the invitation? Well, because when you think about it, he's talking about a category of people who are lost and alone and without any hope. And when you're at that place when you know it's only by grace you can be saved. When you're at that place where you know my only hope to be at that sort of feast is by an invitation which I don't deserve. When in your heart you're in that place where you know I don't deserve to be there. When that invitation comes to you through Jesus Christ, you're not going to say please excuse me. You're going to embrace it with open arms. And you're going to want to be there so you can dwell in the house of the Lord by the grace and mercy that is only found through the servant, Jesus Christ. There's no place we should rather be than in the house of the Lord. Church, that's the heart of a true disciple, isn't it? That's an aspect of the heart of a true disciple. You're not just focused on redemption. It's a heart that says, I don't deserve to be part of God's family. I don't deserve to be at the great banquet in the kingdom of God. I don't deserve to be there. It's a heart that knows that at our core, we are a lost and a sinful and a broken and undeserving people who are wholly dependent on God's grace. And so when that invitation comes, it's a heart that just grabs it with open arms and says, you know what, I'm going to be there, and I'll be there as fast as I can, because I know that that invitation is my only priority and my only hope. Now, it's worth asking ourselves, what things might have priority in our hearts over God? What things might have priority in our hearts in the here and the now over God? What things in our life might be causing us to remain fixed on the here and now rather than the eternal? You know, today's culture will tell you that you need to get your house in order first. You need to get your finances straight. You need to get your superannuation under control. You need to get in the property market fast. Now, we can be financially responsible. There's nothing wrong with that. But the danger is that it consumes our heart, so we start to respond by God by saying, please excuse me. I've got to get my house in order first. I'll get to you later. You know, today's culture will tell you that you need to own and be part of the latest and the greatest thing. You need to own the latest technology. You need to be, see the latest movies. You need to be on top of all the latest trends. Now, those things, again, they're not inherently bad, but the danger is they consume our hearts so that we start to say, please excuse me, God. I need to experience these things first. I'll get to you later. Yet you know, today's culture will tell you that you need to go and experience everything the world has to offer. You need to travel. You need to build your profile. You need to get in a relationship. The danger is it consumes our heart so that we start to say, please excuse me, God, I need to experience these things first. I'll get to you later. But our God is not a God we can just put on hold while we pursue all of our own earthly desires. Because when we do that, we never get a taste of the banquet. It's not just we're not at the banquet, we never even get a taste of the blessings that can only be found in the house of the Lord. Because our God is a God who wants our heart to pursue him above everything else. He's a God who who wants us to just desire entering into his presence and being with him so that we drop everything and we go. There is no other priority which holds us back so that when our invitation comes, we embrace it with open arms, no matter what earthly priorities we might be surrounded with at the time. What are some of the hallmarks of a heart of a true disciple? Well, it's focused on redemption, not rules. And it seeks first God's kingdom above everything else. But even more than that, what we learn in the next section is that it involves a heart that's willing to make him Lord. See, the scene switches a little bit, moves away from the banquet, and Jesus is now addressing a crowd, a broader crowd of people. And in front of that large crowd, he carries on a similar train of thought. And Jesus makes quite a provocative statement in verses 25 to 27. It says... It's Jesus speaking to the crowd. If anyone comes to me and he does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, what does Jesus mean by that statement? He's not literally requiring us to hate each other in our respective families even though at times we can live in obedience with that calling, that's not actually what the text is about. He's going to the extreme to make the point that there should be absolutely nothing in our lives that we are not willing to leave behind for the sake of the gospel. There should be absolutely nothing in our lives which takes priority over him and which we are not willing to submit to him as Lord. And you can see this point being emphasised in what Jesus says next. He says that a builder of a tower, before he starts building, he's going to count the cost of building it. Okay, That's common sense. And equally, he says a king who's about to charge in a battle will assess what's involved in going into that battle before they charge in. And so following that statement, the logic is, well, if I'm going to consider following Jesus Christ, I need to assess the cost of that. I need to think, what's going to be involved in that process? And he answers the question in verse 33. He says, In the same way, any of you who does not give up, what does it say? Everything. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. So what's the cost of following Jesus Christ? It costs us everything. Now, please don't read into that a meaning that we literally have to sell up everything if we're going to follow Jesus Christ. Again, that's not the point of what he's saying. What it means is that we need to be willing to submit everything to him. We need to be willing to lay everything under his sovereign control and authority. We need to make him Lord over all. We're called to place under His sovereign control as Lord all that we have. All our finances, all our assets, all of our means, all of our careers, all of our families. And we need to place under His sovereign control as Lord all that we are. All of our skills, all of our talents, all of our abilities, all of our dreams and desires. So that in our hearts, we can honestly and openly say, Jesus Christ, all that I am and all that I have is yours. That's the response of Thomas where he says, my Lord and my God. Not just my God, my Lord. Lord of all. See, it's one thing to seek God's kingdom first. It's another to be willing to let our kingdoms go. It's a very important distinction. It's one thing to seek God's kingdom first. It's another thing to be willing to let our kingdoms go. What kingdoms might exist in, our, in your heart, in my heart, which need to be handed over to Jesus. Because I think when I was reflecting on this, I thought, I know myself, I'm often great at trusting Jesus up to a point. I'm great at trusting Jesus up to a point that's still comfortable. But I'm terrible at trusting Jesus with everything else, with a bit that makes me uncomfortable. I'm really bad at trusting Jesus with everything. But I read verse 33, and I see that the call is to not hold anything back. If anyone does not give up everything he has, he can't be my disciple. Now Andy said last week that nothing we have is ultimately ours. Our call is therefore to be willing to hand over control over everything that we're in possession of and everything that we are to him so that where he says to go, we go. What he says to do, we do. What he says to say, we say. And the ways he wants us to serve, we serve because he is Lord over all. You know, These are some of the hallmarks of the heart of a true disciple of Jesus Christ that we can glean out of Luke 14. And you'll see that none of them relate to external appearances, do they? They all go a lot, lot deeper than that. They're about having a focus on redemption rather than rules, about seeking God's kingdom first, and about being willing to submit to him as Lord and place everything under his sovereign control. But the truth of the matter is that we can't bring about this change in our hearts, can we? Because in our hearts, we, don't want, we want to work our own way into the kingdom. We want to hold on to what's comfortable. We want to chase glory here and now. And we don't worry so much about eternity. You know, In our hearts, we desperately want to maintain our own control over what we have and who we are. So what do we do? We get down on our knees and we say, Jesus, you've got to change this heart. You have to, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you have to bring about this change in me. For he died on the cross and he rose again so that our selfish and self-consumed and ambitious hearts could die with him on the cross. And we could be given a new heart through the power of his Holy Spirit that's a little bit more like his. That's a little bit more like God that's a little bit more like one of his disciples, a heart that's about redemption, a heart that's about seeking after God as our first and only priority, a heart that's about being willing to let every other priority go. Jesus died on the cross so that through faith in him, our hearts could be transformed into a heart like that a heart that is ultimately one that's like Jesus Christ himself. Church, our prayer needs to be that Jesus will do that work within our hearts. For as soon as we lose sight of these things, we become salt that's lost its saltiness, which it talks about in verse 34 or 35. And therefore, we're no longer able to um, f- fulfill the purpose which God has for us. That is the purpose of giving him glory. And then it finishes in verse 35 by saying this phrase, He who has ears, let him hear. Hands up if you've got ears to hear. Hands up. Everyone who has ears to hear. You know what that means? This message is for all of us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him take this in. Let him read Luke 14 and think, "What is this saying about my heart?" The message here is that for each and every one of us, our hearts need to be heart about redemption, about God's kingdom, seeking that first, and about letting all of our kingdoms go and making Him Lord. May Jesus make those things and only those things our inner hearts desire. He Hear who as He is. Let him hear. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge to reflect about what's in our heart, about the kingdoms that exist there which we might not be willing to let go, about the priorities in our lives which we might, not, which we might be putting above you and your kingdom and about how we can be distracted by appearances and living godly lives and and being caught on that to the extent we lose sight of the redemption of our soul and the redemption of those around us. Lord, may you correct and and change and transform our hearts so that everything that is naturally sinful in us dies with you on the cross and is replaced with a heart that is of you, that is pure, that is focused on your kingdom and your glory and your honor. So that when we receive an invitation to be at the great banquet in the kingdom of God, Lord, we just want to embrace it with open arms so that we can taste and experience and be part of your amazing salvation plan. Lord, and all the church said, amen.